You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles to the scripture reading this morning. We're reading John 11, verses 1 to 44. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you were going back there? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask for. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. 
Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know, knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. This morning we consider the truth of God's Word as it's been summarized and confessed by the church, Lord's Day 40 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What does God require in the Sixth Commandment? I am not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts, words, or gestures, and much less by deeds, whether personally or through another. Rather, I am to put away all desire of revenge. Moreover, I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself. Therefore, also the government bears the sword to prevent murder. But does this commandment speak only of killing? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that He hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that He regards all these as murder. Is it enough, then, that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? No. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, He commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward Him, to protect Him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Beloved Congregation of Christ, back in 1991, three friends from some American city decided to go on a two-week Southwest cattle drive vacation. That was the premise behind the movie City Slickers. At a certain point, Mitch Robbins, the character played by Billy Crystal, is riding alone with Kirby, the old crusty trail boss played by Jack Palance. Mitch looks over and asks Kirby, So Kirby, killed anyone yet today? Kirby looks straight ahead and with a deadpan face says, No. Of course, Mitch looks relieved. Then Kirby looks over and he looks Mitch right in the eye and he says, The day is not over yet. As we look at the Sixth Commandment, Mitch's question is one we could be asking ourselves. Have you killed anyone yet today? Because we know that the commandment goes a lot deeper than physically ending someone's life. It's quite possible that we have. It's quite possible that we will. In fact, I'll bet that some of you did it just a moment ago when your pastor began this sermon with an illustration from a movie. 
So it's true that this commandment runs deep and addresses a common problem in our lives. It's difficult to go through a day where we don't dishonor someone with our thoughts, words, or gestures. It's challenging to put away envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge. And even if you manage to avoid breaking the negative side of this commandment, did you love your neighbor as yourself? Did you show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness? Did you do good even to those who have it in for you? Yet all this is what the Sixth Commandment requires of us. At this point, we could despair. We could throw up our hands and throw in the towel. We can't do it anyways, so why bother trying? Brothers and sisters, this is where we need the Gospel. Where we need some good news. This morning we'll see that it's the Gospel which gives us redemption from our failures. We'll also see that it is the Gospel that gives us power to begin a new life. A life of obedience to God's law. And so our theme this morning is that the Gospel leads Christians to honor and protect life. We'll see two things. First of all, that we have a Savior whose life rescues us from death. And second, that we have a Spirit whose guidance directs us away from death. As we turn to the Scriptures, we don't have to look very far past the fall to see man turning to murder. Genesis 4, the well-known story of Cain and Abel. Cain attacked his brother Abel, killed him. But we often forget that there are two more murders mentioned in Genesis 4. Cain's descendant, Lamech, boasted to his wives, Adah and Zillah, about his being a serial killer or at least his willingness to become a serial killer. Lamech said, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. The line of Cain is portrayed as being bloodthirsty and murderous. This develops further in the time of Noah when one of the reasons God sends the flood upon the earth is the violent and murderous ways of men. That was the predominant feature in the line of Cain. Cain's descendants. But what about the line of Seth? The line that would lead to the Savior. After the flood, God reminded the line of Seth that man was and is created in God's image. And therefore, God said to Noah, if someone sheds the blood of man, he is to pay for it with his own blood. And that message seems to have been clear to the patriarchs, at least to Abraham and Isaac. But when we get to Jacob, we find numerous instances of deceit, find numerous instances of unkind actions. This continues with Jacob's sons, the sons who show anything but love for their brother Joseph by selling him into slavery. And we come to the book of Exodus. And no, we're not going through the entire Old Testament. We come to the book of Exodus, we see a mediator named Moses. But Moses does not hesitate to kill a man, an Egyptian who had been beating on an Israelite. As we go through the whole Old Testament, 
Its pages are stained with blood. The book of Judges is full of it. When we get to David, the man who is described as being the man after God's own heart, David has blood on his hands. The blood of Uriah the Hittite. And with all of that, we haven't even gone into the breaking of the Sixth Commandment in its full breadth and depth. We sometimes think that it was the Lord Jesus who first taught that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. However, that principle was already there in the Law of Moses. Leviticus 19, 17-18 says very clearly that God's people were to love their neighbors as themselves. The reality is that the entire Old Testament portrays a people lost in sin and misery, also in deep sin connected with the Sixth Commandment. What about us? Are we any different? Well, I suppose it's true that very few, if any of us, literally have someone else's blood on our hands. But as we've already noted, that's not all this commandment speaks about. It's not just about physical life, making a a heart stop beating. It's about the holistic view of life. Life is not only physical. Life is also spiritual. And all of it is a gift from God. When we break it down in any way, shape, or form, we are attacking God. By ourselves, apart from the Gospel, All of us are in trouble. We need someone to rescue us from our murderous selves and from the wrath of God that we incur with our murderous thoughts, words, and actions. We need someone to save us from our lack of love for those around us. Well, thanks be to God that we have a Savior whose life rescues us from death. One of the most powerful revelations of Christ in that capacity is found in what we read from John 11. Jesus had a friend named Lazarus who died from some illness. And when Christ finally arrives in Bethany, Lazarus had been dead for four days. Martha, close friend of the Lord Jesus, mystified as to what took the Lord Jesus so long. And she almost rebukes him when she says that if he had been there, Lazarus would not have died. Yet she expresses her faith that Christ can still do something about it. And at that point he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Note his question. He's asking you too. Each and every one of you. Do you believe this? Martha replies, and we need to reply with her. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. Jesus Christ is life. He is the source and giver of life. Life in all its fullness, in all its dimensions. And because He is life, He can rescue us from death. He can save us 
from our murderous selves and from the consequences of our sin. In Acts 3.15, He is called the Prince of Life or the Author of Life, as some translations have it. In John 10.10, He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And of course, there are those well-known words from John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Loved ones, when we believe in Christ, we are rescued from spiritual death. Believing in Christ, we can come to the Father and we can have life to the full. When people break any of God's commandments, they are under the curse of God's wrath. But fleeing to Christ, we are safe. We are rescued. The curse of sin is no longer in effect. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, you may have dishonored, hated, injured, or maybe even physically killed or been responsible for the death of another human being. You may have done this with thoughts, words, or gestures. Maybe actions. And perhaps the guilt is killing you. Look to Christ. With Him you have a Savior who takes away your sin and its guilt. Believing in Him, you have a Father in heaven who says, you are not guilty. You are my child, my son, my daughter. You are received in grace in Jesus Christ and are part of a family. Jesus Christ has come to rescue us from death and bring us to a full life. Thank God that you have a Savior who has dealt with the curse of sin. That's the Gospel. But the Gospel doesn't leave us there. It goes on to tell us that the Savior also takes care of the power of sin. He takes care of its curse, but He also takes care of its power. The Gospel of Jesus Christ leads believers in a certain direction. Christ does this through His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us and unites us to Jesus Christ so that we are directed away from death and so that we earnestly desire to honor and protect human life the way that He did, the way that He does. We see this worked out in the first two verses of Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In these words, we see the positive side of the sixth commandment. Basically, it boils down to living a life of love. And in this context, love clearly indicates loving another. Living a life of love doesn't mean putting yourself first. Rather, this life of love is determined by looking at the gospel and looking at what Jesus Christ has done. He has loved us. He gave Himself up for us. 
The gospel sets the pattern for living according to the sixth commandment. If we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, our lives will begin increasingly to conform to the life of Christ. He loved his neighbors as himself. We will too. He showed patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness to others. So will we. He protected others from harm. He he protected others from hell. As much as we can, we will and we must do likewise. Jesus Christ did good for His enemies, even praying on the cross for them. Remember what He said? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's your Savior. We are united to Him. And our lives are more and more going to look the same. And that's because His Spirit lives in us and unites us to Him. In passages like Galatians 5, where we read about the fruit of the Spirit, that's what's at the background. That's the assumption. That fruit of the Spirit is meant to be there in our lives. And there is a very real sense in which it's our responsibility to see that it is. There are commands in the New Testament. And those commands are connected to our thankfulness for the Gospel. And they grow out of believing the Gospel. And we have the power, albeit imperfectly, we have the power to follow those commands. We have the power because of the Gospel. Because the Gospel includes the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I want to look at some of those commands. Just a few of them. Before I do, I want to say something very briefly about murder in our contemporary culture in Canada. We live in a civilized society, so we think where actually physically killing somebody is very much out of the question. You just don't do it. If you have a problem with your neighbor, you can't go over to your neighbor's house and and, and kill him. You don't do that. But there are two exceptions in our culture. First, those whose lives are deemed useless because of old age or sickness. And second of all, the unborn. Let's acknowledge that euthanizing elderly or sick people is wrong. It's sin. Let's also acknowledge and continue to insist that abortion is a grievous evil, that it is a plague on our land. The Bible is clear that the unborn are human beings. And thus, as those who have the image of God in its general sense, the unborn deserve our protection. Christians must be pro-life. Now having said that, there may be those among us, I hope not, but there may be those among us who have secretly had an abortion. Perhaps this sermon really hurts and hits a sore spot. If that's true, I want to assure you of God's grace. Listen carefully, all of you. There is no sin so evil 
that it cannot be forgiven through the blood of Christ. There is room at the foot of the cross also for those who have had abortions. He's a Savior for you too. And for all of us, loved ones, we should be careful in how we speak about abortion with one another and also with those outside our community, people we have contact with. It is a terrible, evil thing. But when we speak about it, let's always be make an extra effort to make it clear that there is hope, that there is healing in Jesus Christ for those who have had abortions and even for those who have performed abortions. As terrible as it is, abortion is not the unforgivable sin. And perhaps it happens and has happened in the church more often than we care to admit. And so let's be careful in how we speak so that grace and healing and help are always extended to those who need it. So remember what our Savior said in Mark 2.17, a passage I preached on a while back. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's now survey what the Bible says to direct us away from death and to lead us to honor and protect human life. What I want to do is focus on matters of the heart. Proverbs gives us some wisdom on this in Proverbs 14, verse 30, where it says, A heart, remember we're focusing on the heart, so a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Envy rots the bones. The Catechism says rightly that envy is a root sin. It is at the root of murder. Envy makes your bones rotten. In other words, you know what happens if your bones get rotten? You're dying. Envy also kills you. When we're not happy with what we have and we always want more and more and we want what others have and we see somebody else's life and say, I wish I was that person. Why can't I have been that person? It's not fair. You're dying from the inside out. And in this way, envy is not only at the root of murder, but it could also be said to be the root of suicide. That's not to say that suicide in every case is caused by envy or even in any case but that when you are envious of others, you're not doing good, any good for yourself or for others around you. Doing harm to yourself. Here again, look to Christ and let His life be yours. Is He envious of others? What they had in any way? Note His contentment. Be who you are in your union with Jesus Christ, the One who is your wisdom. What about those penetrating words of 1 John 3.15? John says that the message has always been there from the beginning. So a moment ago we mentioned that the command to love your neighbor as yourself is in Leviticus 17. 
John says, it, it wasn't just in Leviticus 17, it's been there right from the very beginning. Love one another. And then he says, Cain didn't and murdered his brother. Hatred for other people, John says, is something that we find in the world. The world loves hatred and embraces hatred. The line of Seth, the line of faith, the line of the promise is to be different. 1 John 3.15 Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. We need to understand those words as saying anyone who continues in hate for his brother. In other words, if you found yourself hating someone yesterday, it doesn't mean that you're lost. However, if you enjoy hating another person, and you don't think there's anything wrong with hating someone, and you're just going to continue living in that sin because you don't give a rip, you may very well be unsaved. Christians still sin. It's true. But the difference is that we repent from our sins. When we have hated someone, we confess that sin to God. And we ask Him to forgive us. We turn our backs on that sin and we, instead of hating the other person, we hate our sin. We put the hate where it belongs. We don't listen to the, the snake think, which tells us that we have a right to hate someone. Instead we say, no. Ongoing hatred, when we live in hatred, that's evidence that I don't really believe in Jesus Christ. I do believe in Jesus Christ. And He did not hate. And I'm in union with Him through His Spirit. So I'm going to turn my back on this hatred. I'm going to hate the hatred and not my neighbor. There are many more Scripture passages that we could look at. But let's finish off back at Ephesians. This time at Ephesians 4 verse 2. It says there, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. In love. Love is the foundation of what the apostle commands here. We're told elsewhere in scripture that love covers a multitude of sins. In the world around us, I don't think I have to tell you this, but love is a confused thing. Many unbelievers can't understand this idea that we would love our enemies, that we would love a complete stranger, that we would still love our spouse after having had an all-out yellathon. For many people today, love is a, it's just a feeling. A feeling that's oftentimes confused with sex or sexual attraction. The idea that love is a decision or a choice, that love is something we have to work towards, that something is, love is something that we have to work at keeping, that's foreign to many people. 
In their minds, love is not something that you can command others to do. You either love or you don't. It's not that way in the Bible. In Scripture, we are commanded to love. Love is something that we need to do. Love is something that we can decide to do. It's because of our union with Christ that we can do that. Decide to love. It's all based on God's love. Author and counselor David Powelson describes God's love as active, intrusive love. God has decided to love you when He could have justly condemned you. He's not simply tolerant, just turning a blind eye. He's actively merciful and involved with your life. He hates sin. Yet, wonder of wonders, He pursues sinners by name. God is so committed to forgiving and changing you that He gave His Son to die for you. Poor in spirit, he welcomes with a feast. Powelson says, I quote, God is vastly patient and relentlessly persevering as he intrudes into your life. God's love actively does you good. His love is full of blood, sweat, tears, and cries. He suffered for you. And all that is true in Jesus Christ. And that being the case, the result has to be what we read in Ephesians 4 too. That we, in turn, would be completely humble with one another. That we would be gentle with one another. Being patient and bearing with one another. That's what love is going to look like in our lives. As I said, there are many more passages we could consider But for now, I think we can see that we have a wonderful gospel. We have a wonderful Savior. And as a result, our lives are going to be transformed and changed. And the process of sanctification, it's not easy. And there are lots of ups and downs. We will have struggles. Remember, we have a peace which has started a war. But we have Christ's promise that He will never leave us or forsake us. After saying to His disciples in John 14 that if they loved Him, they would keep His commandments, He went on to say that the Spirit of truth would come and dwell in them. The promise has been fulfilled and will always be kept. Our Savior is faithful and He will do it. Believe it. Let us pray. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for your patience with us, for your love for us. We're filled with love for you and we consider that you gave your son for us while we were your enemies. We thank You that there is room at the foot of the cross for each one of us sinners. The Gospel grabs our hearts and we want to thank You with our lives, with our thoughts, words, gestures, and deeds. We 
pray that You would lead us with Your Spirit away from death and whatever leads to death and destruction. Teach us more and more Your ways of love, patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness. Help us to live out of our union with Christ so that we would protect those around us and do good even to our enemies. Father, we also pray for our nation, a nation which doesn't consistently protect the lives of unborn children. Father, please forgive us our guilt in this as well. And we pray that Canada would repent of this great evil. We pray that our government would change its thinking and desire to do good for those unable to help themselves. Father, here too, we plead for Your mercy and help. We ask all this and offer our prayer in the name of Christ Jesus, the One who is the resurrection and the life. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.